Welcome to this podcast in the Africa Data Hub's webinar series, covering all issues related to data, journalism, and COVID-19 in Africa. For more info, please visit africadatahub.org. So welcome. Welcome, everyone, to our webinar this wonderful afternoon. My name is Patricia Andago. I'm a researcher, and I'm working with the Africa Data Hub. So I'll be the moderator for this session. So the Africa Data Hub is a platform that provides COVID-19 data to newsrooms across the African continent. And one of the key objectives for the Africa Data Hub is to promote ethical journalism by hindering the misinformation and disinformation issue surrounding COVID. And that is part of what has brought us here today. Hence why we're talking about grappling with vaccine misinformation. And with me on the call, I'm with four experts on this topic. We have Benjamin Kagina, we have Keegan Leach, Linda Ngari, and Elizabeth Merab. So I'm just going to hand over the mic to the panelists so that they can introduce themselves and you can get acquainted with them. So perhaps we'll start with Linda, if you could introduce yourself. Hi, Patricia. Hi, everyone. Good to be here. My name is Linda Ngari. I do fact-checking for African Censored, that's identifying misinformation, disinformation, and coming up with articles to debunk fake news. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. Benjamin? Thanks, Patricia, and uh, hello to everyone. Thanks to Data Hub for inviting me to be part of the panelists for this session. And my name is uh, Dr. Benjamin Kina. I work at the University of Cape Town, that is in, in South Africa, and I'm based in Cape Town. My research work focuses on vaccines and immunization, and I've got a particular interest in doing research that informs immunization policies and practices. And the focus of my research here is in Africa. So happy to be here and discuss issues around information and misinformation on vaccines. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to have you here as well. Keegan? Hi, everyone. I'm Keegan Leach. I work for Africa Check as a fact-checking researcher. We are a fact-checking organization based in four countries in Africa, but I'm in Johannesburg in South Africa. Great. And Elizabeth, the person whose profile picture says, I have been vaccinated. Have you? <laughs> Elizabeth, could you please introduce yourself? Thank you, Patricia. My name is Elizabeth Mero. I am a health and science journalist working for Nation Media Group here in Kenya. We cover the East African region and um, parts of Central Africa. We try to disseminate information across East and Central Africa, and I'm happy to be here. All right. Thank you all for joining us here. I can see more people are joining slowly. So I'll start with Elizabeth, the last person who spoke. So you're a science journalist. Could you tell us about some of the contents that you've covered on COVID vaccines? Thank you, Patricia. It's been a lot. Since 2020, I have been covering news around COVID since the first case was reported here in Nairobi in March 2020. But before that, I had about COVID, talked about COVID before the first case was reported in Kenya. And thereafter, I think the pace just picked up, you know, because now you're covering so many topics, genome sequencing, you're covering the number of people infected, the number of deaths, 
and uh, every day these uh, stories come closer home so as a journalist then i have uh, tried to tailor make this information to contextualize it so that the audience in kenya and the audience in east africa are able to interact with the information better than hearing or reading about it happening in the west so the information and articles that have been covering range from the numbers of infected people the number of deaths the research that has been done around covid because we are all learning on the go and uh, the information has to be disseminated on the go to you know it's different from uh, how it was previously where you could take time research on an article and then publish it so mm-hmm. this time you're running against deadlines and verifying the information that you're also putting across Thank what you. kind of research have you talked about has any of it has been about vaccines and how did people generally react to the contents that you put out around covid vaccines yeah the research is about covid vaccines you see the conversation globally shifted from the kinds of treatments that can be used to manage covid to getting vaccinated so that you can reduce the risk of dying and the risk of uh, hospitalization so the research that has been put out by scientists around covid the efficacy of the vaccines the difference between one vaccine and the other mm-hmm. why should people take up get vaccinated for instance that is the kind of information that now where this phase of uh, disseminating information around covid vaccine so mm-hmm. it is evolving every day and you have to keep up so that you also have information at hand that you can share with the audience so mm-hmm. from my personal experience i am heavily on social media so i share mm-hmm. my articles on twitter on facebook i haven't done much of instagram but what, <laughs> the audience uh, feedback on these articles i have shared i mostly come from the experts who point out what i might have missed or what i should add in an article so that it is richer in information that the audience is interacting with i have had people who are non experts ask me questions around where can i get the vaccine which vaccine should i get you know and the interactions uh, my body reactions sorry my body is going to have against this vaccine and i've also had people ask me am i going to die from this vaccine so all this information you have to filter it and share it yeah have you received any backlash in covid coverage no mm-hmm. personally i haven't but mm-hmm. uh, what i have noticed mostly is around mm-hmm. the lack of a reliable information that people mm-hmm. can access and use that to make the decision to either take or not take the vaccine. Mm. I think I like that you you led us towards the second question uh, I'm talking about the lack of reliable information that there is out there about covid and about covid vaccines. Some of the myths that I've been hearing here in Kenya are that the COVID vaccine is just a way for them. I don't know why they always say them. I don't know who them are. It's for them to, you know, control the population, and it's going to make women sterile. 
And another very common myth is that the COVID vaccine, because it's been developed in a much shorter time, then people are used to seeing other vaccines being developed. So there's a lot of concern about like, is this thing, has this thing actually been developed well, or are we going to actually drop dead in two years? Um, I think Elizabeth, like you said, someone asked you, are we going to die? So I'll pass this on to Benjamin as a vaccinologist in this group. What do you think about these myths that are going around circulating in Africa? Thanks again, uh, Patricia. I think those questions that the public are asking are questions that we should listen to and uh, be able to provide the right information to the public so that they can make a decision based on the information that is provided to them. And I think one challenge has been the sources of information are so many, and some of these sources are not reliable. And in the process, this information is driving those kind of myths. So I will start with that, the first one about the vaccines were developed uh, very fast, and actually some of them are saying they're experimental vaccines. So they are conducting experiments on us. And it's true, these vaccines were developed very fast. And I think the year that is supposed to be celebratory for the scientific field by achieving a huge, huge milestone in terms of following the scientific process to identify the virus that causes COVID to developing a vaccine that works and it's it's phenomenal. But in the end, I think it has also created some doubt. And I think one thing I need to mention here, Patricia, to you and to the audience, is that outside pandemic period, vaccine development happens and it doesn't have the attention of the politicians or the media. You know, scientists continue to develop these things, but without so much attention from the public. But of course, given the magnitude of COVID, it was is an issue that validly deserves each coverage. So the reason why the vaccines were developed very fast is because first, there's a lot of experience in vaccine development that has been accumulated over years. And secondly, the way you see technology of pretty much every sector improving every year, so does our understanding of how the immune system works, how to be able to identify the organisms or the pathogens that cause diseases and be able to sequence them and use that information to design vaccines. And also, most of the technology that was used to develop these vaccines is technology that has been used in other vaccines. So it was very, very, very justifiable. And uh, anyone working in the field will know that the reasons behind that achievement of rapid vaccine development is based on very valid reasons. And another big handle in vaccine development is resources. It requires a lot of money to actually develop a vaccine and test it. So given the pandemic nature of COVID, there was a lot of resource mobilization, different partners coming together and making sure that these resources were not a limitation. And that led to rapid development of COVID-19 vaccine. In terms of testing, there was no shortcut taken. Clinical trials were done, as usually happens with other vaccines. And more importantly, before the rollout of the vaccines to the general public, all the safety requirements, manufacturing requirements that need to be met were met, and there's data and evidence to prove that. 
So the public should be at ease to know that there were many factors that came together, support which supported the rapid development and subsequent deployment of these vaccines. And while there, I need to mention this to the audience, that any time we get a new vaccine, this is in the context of not, not having a pandemic, it takes the first African country about 10 years to introduce that vaccine after it has been introduced in high-income countries. So despite us saying about equity, we are much, we are rolling the vaccines at a slow pace in the high-income countries, I think COVID vaccines we've introduced in Africa in less than four months after the high-income countries introduced, which is good. So then the second thing, Patricia and the audience about, Annette, is the vaccine is going to change our DNA. And especially this is because of a new technology of mRNA vaccine or messenger RNA vaccine. And just to be, I'm, I'm trying to be quite uh, simple in explaining, the cell, if you look at the cell like this, inside the cell is what we call nucleus, which contains the DNA, which is the blueprint of life. So whenever you give the vaccine in the cell, it actually doesn't go to the nucleus. It goes to the outside of the nucleus in an area we call cytoplasm. And that's where the immune system cells interact with uh, the vaccine to mount the immune response. That scientists have found is important to protect you from COVID. And therefore, there is absolutely no interaction of the vaccine with our DNA. And that myth of the vaccine is going to change our DNA and make us become different species is incorrect. Thank you for um, explaining the facts of some of the misinformation um, that we've been coming across about the vaccines. Um, if I could pass it on to the fact checkers, because part of your role is to address this whole misinformation and disinformation issue through your fact checking work. So I would ask Kobia Sabu, Keegan, and then Linda, how bad is it really? Like, how bad is this COVID vaccination misinformation problem? Is it being made to be amplified more than it really is? Or in your daily fact checking work, are you actually coming across a lot of misinformation? And what are some of the biggest misinformation and disinformation stories that you've come across? Um, so, I'll start with Kika. It definitely hasn't been blown out of proportion, the scale of vaccine misinformation. We are constantly coming across new misinformation in our work. And we've mentioned some of the most popular ones already here. Um, although I don't know what it was like for Linda and, and everyone at Africa Uncensored. Fortunately, because we knew vaccines were likely to generate misinformation, we almost had a head start on vaccine misinformation that we didn't have on the pandemic as a whole. When the pandemic first started, it was a little bit overwhelming, that sudden flood of new misinformation that came on all at once, whereas we had a lot of time to prepare for the vaccine-specific stuff and you know, write things that we knew would be important when that came up. So it has been a little more manageable, at least from my perspective. I don't know so you're that's... saying that it's declining? It, is a, it hasn't necessarily declining, but the preparation we were able to do for that has given us mm -hmm. a big head start. So, for instance, at Africa Check, we started writing fact sheets and guides and things like that to how vaccines work and how they're approved. And not necessarily in response to misinformation, but so that when that misinformation cropped up, we could refer back to it and we'd have done that work already. Mm -hmm. 
so you sort of like prepared in advance, expecting this misinformation problem to occur. Yeah. Okay. How impactful do you think these fact-checking pieces have been to to hinder this misinformation problem? It's hard to say. It's it's often hard to gauge the effectiveness of a fact check because it's hard to tell whether it's changed the volume of misinformation. The feedback that we get from people who are subscribed to our newsletters and things like that is good, and they've really welcomed the things that we're putting out. So that would seem to be a very good sign. But it's hard to tell whether or how we've affected the shape of that infodemic as a whole. Might we know if there's been a conversion of an anti-vaxxer to be a pro-vaxxer? <laughs> I actually have no idea. I haven't, I haven't heard stories like that from our readers. It is very rare, I think, that hardcore anti-vaxxers are persuaded by things they see because part of that anti-vax position is that the media can't be trusted. But I think mm-hmm. that people who are vaccine hesitant and who are just not sure rather than hardcore conspiracy theorists, mm-hmm. a lot of them are probably reassured or might make different decisions based on seeing a fact check or a piece of good information. Mm-hmm. And Linda, what, what are some of the, you've done quite a bit of work fact checking COVID vaccine uh, stories. What are some of the biggest misinformation and disinformation stories that you've seen? First of all, I'd agree with Keegan that with when it came to COVID-19 vaccination, there was a little more preparation and you'd foresee some of the misinformation that goes around. So there's been the nature of misinformation and also the technique. So when it comes to the nature, it's people spreading information maybe just before the vaccines got into Africa, some people saying people have been vaccinated or you, there was the drug called remdesivir, if my spelling is not wrong. And people would claim that this particular drug is a vaccine that has been allocated to Africans only. But the fact of it is that the drug comes under different brand names in different mm-hmm. countries. Mm-hmm. But that was put out there as they just pick particular information and ride with it and, you know, come up with claims from it. So that's on the nature. And now the technique is now going deep into someone really dedicated to spreading fake news that they would come up with logos for like CNN and there's a website, a marketing mm-hmm. tool called Break Your Own News. So just generating a CNN logo and putting out breaking news, the vaccine could, for example, hinder your fertility, or there was also a claim on it could enlarge your your penis or something like that. So you'd have breaking news on such things. So there's the technique and the nature, different mm. crazy things out there, yeah. What are some of the biggest pain points that you've had addressing this misinformation as you're doing your fact-checking work and you're looking for verifiable information that you can use to speak to your audience and make the facts? What have been the biggest um, pain points while doing this? For one would be because the virus itself is quite new as well as the vaccine. So we'd have fact-checks with a verdict that there is no evidence mm-hmm. that this is true or false. So that's not really telling people something is a fact or fiction for sure, Mm -hmm. because there's just not that kind of information. 
but there's also a lack of conclusive information, especially from Africa, in terms of the number of people who've been vaccinated or things like that. It's just the information is vague. So most of the times we get information from foreign sources or the open source, which may not be particularly touching on Kenya or Nairobi. It's just a large base of information. Yeah. And Benjamin, you're researching on vaccines. So to hear how fact checkers are struggling to find like adequate research that they can use to give their audience actual evidence that these are the facts. What do you think can be done to improve that in the, on the research side so that journalists have content? Yeah, yeah Patricia, I think that's, that's an excellent question. I think one thing that COVID pandemic made partners know is that they have to work together. And I think Africa CDC has been quite at the forefront in terms of making sure that they do analysis of what are the key issues that uh, need to be urgently addressed to support the continent as a whole to respond to the pandemic. And in terms of information, I think they have done a brilliant work in terms of ensuring that accurate information is available in their website. So I would suggest that you make use of that resource, uh, Africa CDC website. And I think another website that is also very useful with, in terms of this information is the WHO, uh, the World Health Organization website. They've created a resource page on data around COVID and pretty much from every country. And then locally, I would trust most government departments of health that they have put something at least to help communicate to the public with regards to the data. Thank you. Thank you for that. Elizabeth, we've been doing quite a bit of these stories. And there's always a risk that whenever you're talking about it, you have to talk about what's happening as a journalist, what people are talking about, what is the main issue happening, and currently COVID is everywhere. So journalists are really covering this content. What tips would you give to these journalists, Elizabeth, when they are covering these stories so that they ensure that they don't boost the misinformation narrative? Thank you, Patricia. So the first thing I'd like to say is I agree with Dr. Benjamin with regards to reference uh, material that journalists can access to verify their information and to actually get more information. Now, what I have noticed and I stand to be corrected is that every journalist all of a sudden became a health journalist, you know, overnight because this information is coming too fast and there's a lot of information that is cutting across what multicultural I've forgotten the, the name but it cuts across different populations Africans, Europeans, Caucasians so how do you tailor make that information so that your audience can relate to it that is the first thing that as a journalist you ought to do number two you have to realize that health is a very personal issue. And like other aspects of communication or journalism, take politics or business, for instance, health is very personal. So you have to understand what patient confidentiality is because the numbers, the statistics are people. So as a journalist, you have to be very responsible when you're reporting on these statistics. When you get what we call a central compelling character, 
it's a very it's a very long word but it simply means a human face to the story that you're telling you have to be very careful that you do not breach their rights because even patients have rights yeah actually we have 13 patient rights here in Kenya as a journalist you have to be conversant with that the other thing you have to build a database of contacts of experts actual experts that if you're going to tell a story about vaccines you might add the voice of an epidemiologist but you have to have a contact of a vaccinologist who can actually put it to context because just like we all specialize that i am a health journalist say someone who's a business journalist scientists also have areas of specialization so if you want to make your story relatable you have to quote the right experts not just any other expert and then the other thing is make your stories interactive yeah mix them you can do a question and answer article i heavily cover news for print so you have to diversify and you don't really um i keep telling my colleagues that you don't really have uh, to chase the breaking news when you see it on social media you have to verify that news as much as we have deadlines you also have to verify the information that you're sharing because at the end of the day this information is not just impacting on the audience it is also impacting on you as a journalist and you have to be very aware of that thank you thanks for that elizabeth kigan what do you think about that what what should journalists do to ensure that as they are writing these very relevant stories about covid vaccines that they are careful about not boosting the misinformation narrative i think if you're careful about how you do your reporting so for instance elizabeth talked about treating the sort of the human subjects that you talk about with respect and things like that i think if you're careful about following a strict journalistic process then you likely will cover all of your bases in the process there for a long time was this idea that there is a backfire effect and facebook used it for a long time as an excuse not to fact check misinformation on their platforms the idea that by fact checking something you actually expose it to a wider audience and research has since shown that it's mostly a myth that if you do responsibly fact check something it's more likely that people who read the fact check are not going to believe the original piece of misinformation and so mm-hmm. i think that as long as you're making sure to correctly refute false information and point out where common myths are wrong and why and things like that then you aren't at very high risk of spreading it further although it does mean that you have to stay very strict to those principles so don't be tempted to push out a story just because there's a deadline when it hasn't been confirmed and fact checked yet treat your your human subjects uh, and the, the subjects of your stories compassionately and don't let one person's bad experience become emblematic of a whole group you touched on something that i want to talk about a bit before i ask linda for her tips of not pushing this narrative so you said that perhaps they said anything you mentioned something about being careful about what you cover do you think that journalists should cover stories about provoked vaccination 
illnesses, severe illness or deaths, do you think it should be covered? And if it is covered, how do you think it should be covered? I think it is useful to cover that kind of thing because it does provide a counter narrative to the idea that vaccines are inherently dangerous and inherently bad. A lot of the actual cases where someone, say, has a bad reaction to a vaccine, in the broader context of them, they are a tiny percentage of all cases, and it's not because of some alarming reason like the vaccine is a poison or something like that. It's because some people do have allergic reactions to medications. Some people do experience severe side effects. So I think it can be useful to cover them Again, so long as you're clear to point out what the broader context is, that these are rare events and that they are expected, but that they don't make the vaccine inherently unsafe or dangerous. Linda, what do you think? You don't think covering a COVID vaccine-related death is going to give anti-vaxxers ammunition for their agenda? I don't think I can disagree with Kitan. I 100% agree because I think the point of journalism is to put out the facts and let you make the decision as an individual and not try to shut out one narrative but by pushing another narrative. So just because there are people who have been affected by the vaccines, so what about their stories? Just making sure you represent both sides and being impartial would really put you out of the picture and let the audience decide, which I think is the purpose of of journalism. Mm, How can you, what tips would you give journalists to do this in a a careful way that that doesn't boost misinformation? I would start by putting out data out of maybe this percentage of people who've been vaccinated, only this percent have died or experienced internal bleeding or hemorrhage just to see that, to make them see that the benefits outweigh the risks and, again, just let them decide from there. Mm. Yeah. So this is more of it should be audience-driven. I mean, I'm putting out the truth. I'm giving yeah. it context. And however the audience sees it, then it's up to them. Yeah, as long as it's the truth, yes, exactly. <laughs> How do you feel about that, Elizabeth? I mean, if the audience still, you know, you put out the facts, you put the data, and the audience is still carrying that misinformation narrative and spreading it around. Um, What do you think about that? How do you think that should be solved? I think the responsibility. We all have, at this point, we all have responsibility to guide the audience. I agree with Linda that we don't decide for the audience. We just put out the facts as they are, and they, they are the decision makers, you know. It would be a disservice for journalists to not do their background checks on the stories they are publishing because then it transfers to the audience. But if you have all the facts, both sides of the story, then you you report it as it is and you leave it to the audience. Now, that is very different from the audience now taking that information and disseminating it in a way that creates misinformation because then if you've done your fact checking and you've verified your information, we are all our own storytellers with the the age of social media. So the way somebody interacts with that information may impact negatively on the people who then pick up the information from them. But if I'm sensitizing much on 
going to the websites that have the resources, go to the websites of the media houses like Nation Africa to get the information that because we verify each information that we put out, especially with regards to COVID. Then uh, the final thing that I'll say, I'll give an example. Yesterday, LeBron James came out and said that uh, he finally decided to get vaccinated. He admitted that uh, initially he was very skeptical, but after doing his research and and things of that nature, he felt that it was best suited for him and his family to finally get vaccinated. And then YouTube yesterday also announced that it will be pulling down stories that spread, I mean, videos that spread misinformation. So these are steps that social media apps are taking. These are steps that public figures are taking so that uh, we can have a better interaction with the audience. So for me, it's all about verifying the information that you have at hand. Do not be quick to share it on your your Facebook page if you've not verified it. Do not pitch it to the editor if you are not sure you can stand by what you have pitched, you know. So if you, Elizabeth, today go and pitch about a story about people who've died after getting vaccinated, what do you think the response is going to be? From From my editor? Yes. (laughs) You know, um, the aspects of journalism still stands, whether you're reporting on business or you're reporting on health. The aspect of information, uh, informing, educating, the newsworthiness of that particular story you're doing, those tenets of journalism still stand. So, of course, a story about, say, someone dying after getting vaccinated would resound well (laughs) to the editor, you know. But if I, as a journalist, cannot verify it, I will not pitch it because then my editor will will be waiting for a story, you know, on this death. And if I cannot back up the information that I have given him, then what is the point of telling the story? So I am actually looking at this from a perspective that I, as Merab, the health journalist, I have the first responsibility of how I pitch that story to my editor and how how much background I've done on that story before I pitch it. Yeah, because the editor is dealing with so many topics that mm-hmm. he might he will pick up the pitch and follow you up. And if you cannot back it up, then you stand the risk of sharing this information, the partial information that you have. Then it does a lot of damage. And you know, with health, you cannot take it back. The damage that it can cause death, information that you share can actually cause death. Verify it before before pitching. And research on it before you pitch it. Mm -hmm. Benjamin, as the vaccination expert here, how would you like to see these stories evolved? It is actually a very, very sensitive issue. And so I agree with Ian, Linda, and Elizabeth in terms of these stories need to be communicated objectively to the public. I think where I need to perhaps put a huge, huge disclaimer is that sometimes, and I've interacted with journalists telling me, Benjamin, uh, we've had some people from KwaZulu Natal that have been vaccinated, and a day or two later, people have already died. And we're writing this story, and we need your input. So the way 
there's an established standards of developing vaccines. There's also an established, established standard of investigating how the vaccines may have caused an adverse event, and this includes death. So it's highly unlikely that a day after death following vaccination, the relevant authorities are finalized the investigation to know whether that death or illness is indeed caused by the vaccine. And once that information goes out to the public, as Elizabeth said, you cannot undo to tell the public it's not a vaccine. And I think this is this has been one of the challenges in that gap between investigation to rule out the role of vaccination with mm -hmm. the adverse event. And I would perhaps otherwise see it, as much as I know journalism is very rapid, this is not like science where we start something and publish in two years' time. <laughs> I think it is always good to make uh, that comment that there is an established process to investigate whether this person indeed died or experienced that president following vaccination. And because there's a lot of alert from the authorities on this, all cases are being investigated. And then once the investigation results are out and rule out the vaccine, then that should also be communicated to the public because mm. it completes the loop of communication. Mm -hmm. Linda, do you think we are going to be seeing more or less of these COVID vaccine stories or are they just on a dial? Is the audience want? At the moment, I would say we should see more because, well, maybe I've, I think I've seen a comment on people getting tired of all this vaccine information. But I think that's from, I would say, privilege because the that's only on social media. The people who have no access to the internet, people who do not really interact on, on Twitter and Facebook and all these platforms are the ones who are not serviced much by this fake news debunking and things like that. And I feel like that's a gap that should be filled, especially with local media and, and radio stations, things like that, to make sure that there's more information going out because I feel like that's the gap and it's a huge gap, especially in Africa, that has been untapped. So more content should be put out there. Kigan, yeah. do you think the audience is bored? I mean, we're saying that more content should be put out there, but is the audience even going to interact with it? I don't think that it's necessarily the case that the audience is bored. I think that every time there is a new development, there is a renewed interest. And so the things that you put out in between sort of the biggest, most newsworthy events, like in South Africa, every new wave of COVID has come with a new wave of misinformation. And the work that you do in between can support the work that you then have to do in those peak times. And so I don't think it's that the audience is necessarily bored, but I think interest is going to come and go. And because of that, it's worthwhile still putting out good information and still making sure that you're on top of things. Great, great. So maybe we just check the questions on the chat. Could I respond to one of the Q&A questions from Ali? Please do. You've asked about how do you go about the challenges in getting COVID-19 data from mostly state authorities as fact checkers? Fortunately, in South Africa, a lot of our state, our government organizations like Stats SA and our health department are quite reliable 
But there are cases where you can't necessarily get or can't necessarily trust information from a government source. And this is a question that's been put to us in a lot of our training sessions and things. And the advice that we give to people there is try and focus on information that is always true and that isn't necessarily going to change. So for instance, in something like a pandemic, focus on the details about the disease and the treatments and the symptoms and things like that that are going to always matter to your audience, even if, say, the case numbers for a particular week aren't available for you because they're being withheld. And that way you can ensure that you're putting out at least some useful and good information, even when you can't give them everything you want to. Thanks for that. Let me read um, Ali's second question. So she says, as Sierra Leone last passed away days after allegedly taking the vaccine, and this was all over social media, even when the Ministry of Health dismissed it and Dubawa worked on it, the damning effect was far-reaching, especially when it was covered by some newspapers. And the avalanche of conspiracy theories on vaccines are for reducing the African population. How can you convince the public in such situations because people don't trust authorities to be bold enough to tell the truth if the death was actually as as a result of vaccination? So I think the question is here, how do you convince the public after there were so many conspiracy theories after this nurse passed away? Who would like to address the question? We'll try to cover some key issues around that. So, Ali, I think one, one issue about death related to vaccine, it's an interest not only to the government where the death has occurred, but to the global community. A COVID death, a COVID vaccine related death in the U.S. should concern us all, in any other country in the world, should concern us everywhere. So it is an international issue of interest. So at the very least, the health authorities should do investigation and make sure that the causality assessment has been done to rule out or to support whether the vaccine indeed caused the death. And then if that happens, I think what we are seeing in the period of building confidence for vaccination against COVID is that you've got two arms. You've got the messenger and the message. And the messenger needs to be trusted by the person. And I think however reliable, truthful you are with the information, if the public don't trust you, you're not going to convince them. So I think it seems to me that this is a communication issue that needs to be addressed by the government uh, by not getting support or input from communication experts and finding out who is supposed to uh, communicate best to the public yeah, I like that you said that the government needs to collaborate with the experts because here the issue was that the public did not trust the government to say the truth. So possibly information should come from experts, independent experts in that field who can relay the information to the public. So maybe let me check another question. What should be the role of the government in regulating vaccine misinformation? I think, Patricia, that's a very difficult question that <laughs> the government probably should uh, respond to because, uh, as a journalist, what I've noticed mostly is about uh, lack of community sensitization. 
So that has also led to hesitancy towards these vaccines. So probably the government should actually actively involve people who have been vaccinated, for instance, to be vaccine ambassadors, control the information by sharing accurate information on their social media pages. Because we have seen the instances where somebody like the CS of Health here in Kenya uh, sharing what I'd call inaccurate information right before the vaccines were deployed, you know, and that had an impact on the audience and that had an impact on the society's uptake. So when you have such officials who hold such uh, great responsibilities, they ought to involve the experts so that they have accurate information that they share with the public. And then uh, probably just have some sort of social media regulation. I know that is a very controversial area of discussion because uh, it then infringes on freedom of speech and expression. But at this time, I think the most the government can do is actively participate in sharing accurate information. Yeah, I mean, YouTube said that they were going to remove any anti-vaxxer videos from their platform. So it is possible not only on the government side, but also on the social media side that some of these platforms also have the responsibility to ensure that the misinformation is spread. So we'll take like the last comment from Linda before our closing remarks. Um, mine was just to add on Elizabeth's point. I, I remember mentioning that that's one of my biggest pain points, that governments are not really responsive. You'd find that You'd have health officials in, in the government ministry creating a social media account. They all have Twitter accounts. They all have online presence, but they're just there to feed us information. When you want to ask a question, they would not be responsive. The websites have contacts, but when you call the numbers, it's just a whole rat race. No one is so I don't know, you'd think that they have social media presence, so they will be more accessible, but it, it works on, on the opposite side. So, yeah. So they also need to be more responsive. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth, Linda, Benjamin, Keegan, and thank you to all our attendees. It's been a wonderful discussion. So thank you, guys, and have a lovely afternoon. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Africa Data Hub's webinar series. For more resources like this, please visit africadatahub.org.